You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. This is Hannibal here from thehannibaltv.com. And today, I think this is the record, my furthest shoot interview via Skype, Rick Bassman, all the way from Hawaii. If any of you haven't heard of him, he is a very successful entrepreneur. He helped bring in many wrestlers into the wrestling business, including the Warriors, Sting, and John Cena. He managed multiple MMA stars, such as Mark Coleman, Tank Abbott, and Tito Ortiz. And now he has his own podcast, which is debuting, I believe, this Saturday. Uh, how are you doing today, sir? Man, I am doing really well. Thank you for the intro, Devin. And I'll say, good to see you. But I think we're here in Hawaii, we're supposed to do the uh, Shaka thing. So, hey, man. Nice <laughs> to see you. All right. You got it down from, from the cold of Canada. That's good. Yeah, there's. I was supposed to be in Arizona this week doing interviews, but I'm stuck here in the snow, unfortunately. But it looks beautiful out there. It's. You know what's funny? We're we're like crying the blues out here today on Maui because it's a little bit gray and the temperature has plummeted to like seventy degrees. So we're uh, pretty sad out here today. What brought you to Hawaii from LA? Because you're very known as a fixture in the Los Angeles wrestling and MMA scenes? Oh, God. That's a, <laughs> that's a crazy first question, and here's why. What, here's what you'll find for me on these interviews, Devin. I, I give what seem to sometimes be long answers to short questions, and it might seem like it's meandering a bit, but I promise I'll, I'll come back and, and answer the question. Um, I, I know that we're going to talk about fun stuff and stories, and I have tons of stories from the pro wrestling and mixed martial arts world, and I warned you that I'd probably go a little deep and dark at times. And the, the first question, philosophical, the first question you asked is just all about deep and dark, man. I, I came to Maui from Houston, Texas, actually. Um, I spent most of my career, most of my life in Southern California. And this was just uh, three years back. And I had, uh, man, the bottom had fallen out for me. I, I had hit the proverbial rock bottom, which was years of like, horrible illness and, and life-threatening surgeries and injuries and homelessness and depression and drug addiction. I mean, the list, it's silly. It goes on and on. And I don't say that to make anybody feel bad for me. It's just part of the story. And, and it's very much in my past now, physically and mentally both. Um, it's funny. I know we're on visual here, so I keep doing this. All right. Anyway, um, I was in a rehab drug and alcohol rehab, courtesy of WWE. I thank God that they took care of me during this time. I was in Houston, Texas. I started to get my life back together, at least mentally and emotionally, I hope. At least I think I did. And I'm like, God, I'm there with three of my pit bulls. I went to rehab in Houston. So it's the only rehab in the United States I could find that would take my three pit bulls with me. So that's why I went there. Um, it was right after that crazy hurricane. We got involved in helping with dog rescue there, which was nice. So I got to do something of service while I was there. Uh, we reached out to Booker T and brought him over to the rehab to talk to the troops. That was cool. But other than that, I kind of just stayed in my bubble there and decided I needed to get my life back together. And I needed to take my poor dogs, who I dragged all over hell and gone, 
and find a place to, to stabilize and rebuild my life. You're here in my mid fifties, Christ, you would think I would have had it figured out by now. And I'm sitting in Houston one day, I got a couple consulting gigs. I had no money to my name and I somehow just decided Maui. I mean, I guess I could have moved to Detroit, right? So Maui seemed like a better choice and set my sights on it, got organized, figured out a budget, figured to move my dogs there and set everything up to be like $17,000. I had a couple hundred bucks to my name and I just got my ass to work, man. And uh, moved to Maui just for, for no reason than I have nowhere else to go. Well, that is a shock to me because I had no idea you had any type of those issues. You always, from everything I've known about you, I've never even heard any stories like that about you. So I guess oh, yeah, dude, the, 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 <laughs> the, the list of afflictions and and downs goes on and on. You know, I wrote a book a few years ago, and it's done. Um, it's called uh, it's called Little Big Man. Here, this is the manuscript for it, and it says on the back here, "How many chances at life does one man have?" And you see lives one through eight crossed out. And I have the same tattoo across my back, and the front is like you see these one through nine again with all these like crazy things in there, like you know, hypodermic needles for drug addiction and my daughter who I lost and it just goes on and on. And, you know, I had stage, I had stage four lung cancer for three years, spent it three years in the hospital near death. I've had a heart attack, two strokes. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. I've lost pretty much all my family members, but the flip side of that tragedy and all those lows, and I've had some amazing, amazing highs in my life. And I don't mean just drug and alcohol induced. Um, I mean, great achievements and great times and great friendships and, so we, we always hear the, the metaphor that life is a roller coaster, and it is. We all know that. But it seems to me like my, my peaks and my valleys are just a little more exaggerated than, than most, I think. That's all that is. And I was reading that you started off with a hard life, too. You had testicular cancer when you were very young. Which is Did I actually start? Yeah. I started off with an easy life, actually. I don't mean to contradict you. Um, but I grew up in Southern California in a middle-class suburb and a very, very nice father and uh, a somewhat volatile but loving mother and a brother a year younger than I. And it was a pretty idyllic upbringing. We were raised well. There's, there's no, no, oh, by the way, I always forget to, to qualify. I have four pit bulls here with me and they're my babies and we live up remote in the, guys, I'm doing an interview. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> they know but they know about interviews because we do a podcast now but i always have to say that um dennis eos quiet I'll, I'll introduce you to them in a minute but um we live remote here up here in the mountains of maui in this forest and it's really cool it's beautiful it's isolated which i love but if, if a car or a person comes anywhere like within a few hundred yards the, the dogs go off so that may happen once or twice but um Yes, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. It was a really nice upbringing. And my mom suddenly dropped dead when I was 13 years old. And I was very, very close to my mother. Uh, my mom was like always the life of the party, man. My dad, nicest guy in the world, but like just devoid of personality. I mean, he was just mellow. Um, nice guy, though. Really nice guy. My mom would do weird things like take me and my brother to the Braille School for the Blind the day and we'd have to wear blindfolds she would she, it's gonna sound weird and i swear the following did not scar us but she took us to a hippie colony keep in mind this was the 70s and we had to walk around naked all day with the hippies 
my, my mom was like very experimental or experiential, whatever you want to call it. Now, we grew up in a, a Jewish household, not religious, but that's our, our heritage. We celebrated Christmas and Hanukkah both because, you know, double the fun. But my mom thought it'd be cool to enroll her non-practicing Jewish son into a very hardcore parochial Catholic school. Stop. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> they want to respond to that tone. I love them more than anything, but got to let them know. So I, I got enrolled in this Catholic school and my mom died very suddenly when I was 13 and it gone just like that. She was away for the weekend having fun and she was gone and it hit me hard, man. My dad had to go on the road to work because we found out my mom had practically driven him into bankruptcy and he was gone all the time and left me and my brother to our, our own devices. And, you know, we, we weren't hurting, but we kind of became like these junior criminal masterminds, man. We pulled off so many capers and got into all kinds of mischief. But, you know, as is like so representative of all my life with the ups and downs, um, we, we had a hell of a time also. Lots of, you know, tiny little teenage girls running around. And I can say that because we were little teenage guys at the time. So I think that's okay to say that. Um, and no supervision. And you know, a lot of alcohol, got into drugs at that point for the first time. And you know, had a hell of a time. But I, I took my mom's death very hard. And I started this Catholic school just three months after she died. And I got to this campus. I was already shell-shocked. I just it was still kind of in a fog over my mom being gone. And the, the one thing I noticed, though, even though I was in a fog, when I got to that school the first day with 400 students total in the whole school, is I was not only the only non-Catholic in that entire school, I was the shortest person in that school. Not the shortest boy, the shortest person, girls included. And the very first day, this big, giant kid, Michael Darwin from Peru, I'll never forget him, walks up to me. He goes, hey, he goes, are you Jewish? And I said, yeah. And boom, man, laid me out right across, right there in the middle of the, of the quad. And that was the first, that wasn't a fight. That was one, a one and done. Um, I had no clue. But that was the first of what became like 200 fights that first year of school, which sounds like a bullshit pro wrestling exaggeration. I, and I know that. But, you know, nine months and five days a week and sometimes two or three or four or five fights a day. That's what happened that first year. And that's where I learned to fight. I became pretty fierce as the smallest kid in school. And by halfway through the school year, it was more sport and fun than anything. And I even ran for office at the end of that year and won. So I became popular for my fighting spirit, I guess you would call it. But um, it was stressful, man. And, you know, at 16, suddenly, my, my red ball blew up huge. And, like, if they're both that size, I'd be like, I'm doing good. But they weren't. <laughs> and, um... You know, I got rushed into uh, the doctor, and he said, that thing's got to come out tonight. And they sent it to pathology, and it was malignant. They tested every other test known to man. It turned out I had infested in both lungs. So I had testicular cancer, what they call metastases, or spread to both lungs. And that started a three-year ordeal where the majority of my time was spent in the hospital as an inpatient with four major surgeries and three years, like nonstop, hardcore, poisonous chemo. So it's life's kind of been like that for me ever since, man. One major thing after another, one major good thing, complimented by one major bad thing. But it's all it's all lessons, man. How did you become involved in the in the wrestling business? Well, I got into you know, I was a big fan growing up as a kid, um, back in what we call the territorial days and 
the territory I watched was uh, NWA Los Angeles, which was the Lavelle territory. I, I'm, a, I'm assuming a lot of your viewers are probably pretty hardcore fans, so they know what we're talking about, the territories. And, and I loved it. Uh, my dad took us once a year, every January, to the Olympic Auditorium to watch the Battle Royal, you know, where Bruno won one year and Andre one year and Java Rook, who was Johnny Rod, somehow got put over one year. Um, but man, it was, it was amazing. And I watched every Saturday on KCLP Channel 13. So I, w I was a fan from day one as a kid. And I also grew up a big, and I told you I give long answers to short questions, but this all makes sense. Um, I also grew up a big comic book fan, more DC than Marvel for whatever reason. Um, so I loved wrestling and I loved the comics. And I stopped watching wrestling when the territories went away. I don't know, the early 80s, maybe late 70s. And a few years later, I'm in Santa Barbara. I had gone to school after I had my remission from cancer. I was in school for three months, UC Santa Barbara, before I dropped out to start a business. And I built um, a pretty sizable, what I call mini empire in the, in the rock music business over that first few years. By the time I was 20 to 25, ended up with two nightclubs, um, a modeling agency, a security guard company, um, my own limousine company. And I also promoted, I kind of owned that market for concert promotion. Doing back then what was called new wave bands, Talking Heads, Go-Go's, B-52's, The Police. That was all under the Bassman Productions banner. So I'm doing that, going crazy, man. Live the epitome of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. And I'm lying in bed one morning with some girl, I don't remember. And I turn the TV on and there's wrestling. And she's like, what's this? I'm like, oh, it's pro wrestling. There's that Hulk Hogan guy I keep hearing about because it was, you know, he was getting into the media, but I hadn't seen him. And he was wrestling Johnny Rollins, Java Rook. So strangely enough, Java Rook rears his ugly head again somehow. And this girl's like, change the channel. I'm like, no way, we're watching this. So laid in bed watching wrestling with random chick, who, which I would never say these days because that doesn't sound good. And I do respect women too much. I just say it to illustrate the story. Um, and I, I kind of fell in love with wrestling again. But here, here's what happened, man. This was when it was all about USA versus, you know, not anti-America. The Iron Sheik, Nikolai Volkov. If you remember that, the Cold War versus America. And I'm watching the American heroes, the guys that have been ordained to play the American heroes. Hulk Hogan, of course. Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. Uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, Wyndham and Rotundo as the American Express. And so here's, here's what I came to as a conclusion. And this is, to me now, this sounds blasphemous because I didn't understand pro wrestling and how it worked. And I, I would say very differently these days, but then I'm looking at it going, wow, these guys are the American heroes? Well, they don't look like Captain America because that's what they should look like. They're not very articulate. You know, I, I didn't understand what it took to be a successful pro wrestler. So to me, they needed to look like comic book characters come to life. And at that point in my life, I had a lot of money. I would pretty much do whatever I wanted to do to start new things in business. And this idea popped into my head. I want to start a pro wrestling group called Power Team USA. It just came to me and I want to go out. I want to find four guys that are multi-ethnic that look like I think a pro wrestling American hero should look. I want to put them in red, white, and blue and march them right up to the top of the business. Well, I had, and I went and I set about to do it. The thing I didn't do was march them right to the top of the business because the whole thing was just, was misconceived on my part. I had no idea, not knowing about the business, that you couldn't take four completely brand new green guys and get them over at the top 
as a unit that is created by somebody outside the business. So like I said, it's a boundly conceived idea, but I went out and I, I looked for my Italian American and my blonde haired boy, all American boy and my American Indian. Uh, and, and the black guy, of course. And ultimately, two of the guys that I discovered, there were a lot of revolving members on this power team USA, but two of the guys I discovered, one who was my blonde haired blue-eyed all-American boy and one was my American Indian, were respectively Steve Borden and Jim Helwig, who went on, of course, to become uh, Sting and the Ultimate Warrior. And that, you know, I'll tell you, man, I've, I've kind of lived off that reputation-wise for the past 30-some years. A lot of people in your business and my business know me from that. Um, what that did, though, did do those open the doors for me to legitimately get into the business and learn the business. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is, is history. So where did you find Sting and Warrior exactly? Well, Sting, I found behind the desk in a racket. No, sorry, in a gym in Reseda, California, in the San Fernando Valley. He was working there as a day manager making uh, $4 an hour, whatever the, the wage was back then. And the first blonde hair, blue eyed guy I had for the all American role in power team was a guy named Jerry Botbiel. And he worked very, for a minute in AWA after we had split and Jerry didn't work out. He was the first guy I ever kicked out of any sort of organization in pro wrestling. Although God knows that that would multiply in the years to come. And we needed somebody to replace him. And we're going to this gym every day. And here's this guy behind the counter, you know, good looking guy, good physique, blonde hair, seems very, very straight laced. And that's Steve Borden. And I asked if he'd be interested and he said, uh, no. And I worked on that guy for months, man. Steve will tell you now, he wanted nothing to do with pro wrestling whatsoever. Finally talked him into it and he became staying, which is pretty amazing. Um, Warrior, I had also lost my American Indian. At this point, I'd become uh, acquainted with and friendly with the owners of Gold's Gym, Pete Gronkowski and Ed Connors. And Ed knew about this. He goes, hey, I have a guy that might fit. And he showed me this 8 by 10 photo of this guy that with physique and looks were just off the freaking charts. Put me on the phone with him. The guy is incredibly intelligent and articulate. I'm like, this is our guy. And that was, uh, that was Hellwig, or Warrior. Wow. So was Warrior more interested than Sting to be part of it? Absolutely. He want, he was in from second number one on the telephone. Connor Ed Connors had prepped him for the call, so he knew what it was about. He wanted in. Um, Jim, as it turned out, in, in my mind at least, had a very calculated idea of how he was going to get into pro wrestling and kind of pave his own way. And, you know, he, in, in my mind, this is my opinion. He might disagree if he were still with us. But in my mind, he used me and my money and the house I set up and the training I set up and the trainer I set up to get the door open for himself because he always planned to go off on his own and not be part of the group. Was the trainer Red Bastine? Red Bastine assisted by Billy Anderson. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Do you have any Red Bastine stories? Because I understand he was uh, quite a wild man at times. You know, I have so many stories about so many people in this industry. Oh, my God. Some of which I'll even tell you. Um, they'll be pissed at me. Um, Red is not one of them, though. No, Red, uh, the first day he came to train, he tried to kick me out of the room 
because it was all, you know, very cafe back then. You didn't have people in a training room. And I'm like, dude, I'm the one that just put that $10,000 in your hands. So I'm staying. And I did. And I got to watch and learn a little bit about it. But we didn't have a whole lot of interaction. Um, 15 years later, or whatever it was, when I had Ultimate Pro Wrestling, UPW, and my school, Ultimate University, I think legitimately was considered the number one school in the world at that point. Um, Red happened to be in town in L.A., and we connected somehow. I don't remember how. And he and his wife came by the school. And it was kind of cool. It was like so surreal having him in my school all these years later. And we had a great time. He got up in the ring. He addressed the students. My classes would be attended in those days by literally 40 to 50 people. And a common day at my school, you'd have Adam Pierce, Chris Daniels, uh, Luther Reigns, uh, Spanky, Brian Kendrick, Paul London, Victoria. Um, and that list of The Miz, the list goes on and on. So I, my only encounters with Red ever were in training a million years ago with Sting and Warrior. And then one day in my UPW school, 15 years after that. So no stories. Sorry. And how was Bill Anderson to work with? Was he kayfabing you as bad as Red? I don't remember now, to be honest. Um, I think my, my recollection, if I had to answer that question, would be no. Um, only because Bill, and, and I'm not saying this was at all intentional on his part, and certainly not manipulative, because I like Bill. If I saw him now, we'd be friends. Um, I think Bill caught on to pretty quickly that at the risk of sounding like I'm putting myself over, I knew how to make things happen and I knew how to create opportunities and he wanted to be part of that. So he treated me well and I presented him with opportunities whenever I could. And for people that don't know Bill, he did a lot of enhancement work for WWE and he also was referee for WWE and announcer from time to time. I guess he was like, a, I think he lives in Arizona now, but he was like a local California wrestler at that time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was around forever. He and uh, another journeyman by the name of Tim Patterson were one of uh, many incarnations of the Hollywood Blondes. And, uh, I mean, there were all kinds of different Hollywood Blondes all over the country and all over the world, I'm sure. They were the Southern California version. Um, to my recollection, they were very solid workers. And they, they were, you know, they were really pleasant guys, I have to say. It was good dudes to be around. And when you were working with the bands earlier, when you had your nightclubs... What uh, were some of the favorite bands that you worked with that people would know the names of? You, uh, you know, it's, it's so funny, Devin, because I'm like so old and so old school these days that bands that I think are mainstream, people haven't even heard of. But um, I can tell you like some of my very favorites that I worked with personally you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, Meatloaf. I love Meatloaf. Not the food, the singer. Do you know him? Yes. A great guy. Dude, the village people I had a blast with. Um, the band The Clash, they're, you know, classic. They're amazing to work with. Um, most of my favorites are bands that are a little, like, you know, I, I almost beat the shit out of Axl Rose in a hotel lobby in Bombay, India at three in the morning one night. And this is just eight or nine years ago when I was promoting concerts in India, of all things. So I have my least favorite list for some guys that are major. Um, the guys, like, if you know the band, um, The Sweet, that does, like, Ballroom Blitz and Little Willie and Fox on the Run, guys like that, man, you know, had so much fun with and, you know, did, um, all right, here you go. First time I ever put a needle in my arm was backstage at the Arlington Theater in Santa Barbara, 
probably about 83. I don't always remember the exact year, but this is probably right. And uh, I had produced a show that night, Bassman Productions Presents, and we sold out, which is 2,000 tickets, made, made some pretty good money. You know, that night I probably made eight nine thousand $9,000, which in 1983 was a lot of money. Everybody's, celebra everybody's celebrating because when you sold out, that's just what you did. We had been doing cocaine all through the day, all through the night. And now it's, it's just how it was. Man. And then um, after the show, I'm checking the dressing rooms and the guy goes, hey, mate, you want to hit the rig? I can't do an English accent to save my life, nor did I know what a rig was. But he explained <laughs> it. And I'm like, sure, dude. So my first ever was Billy Idol. And uh, I got all kinds of fun stories like that. Which band trashed one of the hotel rooms you booked for them the worst? I never, ever had that happen, even one time. I could make something up, but nothing ever bad, man. You know, by and large, I, I've had my bad experiences with wrestlers, with fighters, with musicians, um, but nothing, like, truly horrific, thankfully. I see. I guess, unless you count sticking a needle in someone else's arm horrific. I don't know. Maybe some people would, and I wouldn't blame them. So after the Warrior and Sting ended up going on and doing their own things, did you continue building a wrestling school in that area, or did you stop? No. no what happened was I kept replacing guys in, in Power Team USA, and there are so many incarnations of that. The only name that might even be remotely, or a couple names that would be recognizable that were in it for a minute or a guy named Darren McBee. Darren went on to become Malibu from the American Gladiators, if you remember him. Yeah. And then uh, Chris Chavez, Tatanka, um, was my Indian for half a minute. Um, but other than that, you know, it became apparent after a while that the whole power team thing was just ill-fated and wasn't going to work. So I ducked out of it. That was probably in 1989 when I finally gave up the, the Power Team USA fight. And then 10 years later... Uh, myself and two friends, Sean McCulley, who's somewhat known in the mixed martial arts and kickboxing world. Um, he later created LA Boxing, which became a nationwide sensation for gyms. Sean and I and another guy, Craig Radjul, decided to, with our own, do own dime, open the first true mixed martial arts gym in the state of California. It was called Extreme University. It was 1999. I do remember that year. And when we decided where to put a ring in, I asked the guy that was building the ring to make it a hybrid ring and spring load it with the pin so we could do pro wrestling if we decided that was the direction we wanted to go in. Put the ring in, and I decided I was going to start a pro wrestling school. And started the school. Um, if I show you, I'll email you our training, a picture of our first training class. I mean, it is, I know Larry Sharp called his place the Monster Factory. This place would make Larry Sharp School look like the, the puny person's factory. I mean, it was, we attracted the crew immediately. And the school took off. And about, uh, gosh, maybe less than a year in, I got my first WWF development deal. And it just all caught fire, man. It was a hell of a run. We had about, you know, about an eight-year run that was just like the high of all highs in the pro wrestling world. Now, did you approach WWE about setting up that development deal, or did someone from them see that you were on? What happened was I got a cold call one day from Bruce Pritchard, and I didn't know Bruce. I never met him, but I knew who he was. You know, I knew, I knew Brother Love and whatnot, and Bruce was second in command at that time for uh, developmental. Jim Ross was the lead, 
And he says, hey, man, I heard you've been doing good things out there in California. And he said, I've heard you're a producer. He goes, we are creating a new TV show called SmackDown. And this is probably something you, you may not have heard before. He goes, it's going to be an all-women's program. And we want to know if we can hire you to do a casting in Los Angeles. Myself and Jim Ross would come out and, you know, pay you a couple grand, whatever it was. I don't remember. And we'd like you to put together whatever interesting females you can. So I said, sure, I'd be glad to. And we set out we set out to blow them away. Oh, my God. We brought in, like, every top female martial artist, stunt woman, American gladiator, uh, bodybuilder, fitness model. I mean, not, not that anybody from those categories were very famous. But if you follow those categories, we have, like, the who's who of all those worlds there. And Jim Ross and, uh, and Bruce Pritchard came in. And of course, we had tables all lined up with perfect eight by tens of each girl and resumes. And we developed these like judging or evaluation forms for them and absolutely blew their minds. Now, at that time, my school had taken off. As I mentioned, we had some pretty massive guys in there. So I, I set up a little kind of, I don't want to call it a swerve or a work on J.R. Bruce, more of a calculation. Well, I had three of my guys like accidentally drop by and one guy um, was 6'7", 360 pounds, Stefan Gamlin. He, he won the Team Tough Man when my company, UPW, bought the NFL. Um, Sylvester Turkai was another, you know, 6'6", six six 325-pound MCAA Division One wrestling champion. And the third was Russ McCullough, uh, the original Apocalypse. Russ was 7'350", legit. So I had them show up. They, I said, guys, meet in the parking lot, walk in together. I want to make an impression here. And they did that. And, dude, Bruce and JR just about fell off their freaking chairs when these three guys walked in the door. And then they, they asked the question that I anticipated, which was, well, you guys don't by chance have your gear with you, do you? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. So got them in the ring, ran some ropes, took some bumps, and they signed all three guys. And my first development deal came from that. They, they quickly became savvy to the fact that I had like an endless stream of guys just like that. Wow. Yeah, At what point did, uh, did John Cena join your school? Was that in the 90s still or was that in the early 2000s? Mm, I'm not sure of the year. Again, it's a year I don't exactly remember. Maybe 2000, 2001, one or the other, something like that. Did you see something in him right away? I know you obviously you've always had a great eye for talent. Well, you know, honestly, I appreciate that, but I don't think I have a better eye for talent really than anybody else. And I'm, I'm the first to admit that. Like I did not, and I have to, I have to say this now and I say it kind of shamefully. I did not see anything special in Joey Ryan in uh, Paul London in the Miz and look what all, and they're all great guys. Look what they, look what they became. Cena, you'd have to be an idiot not to see it. So I can't really credit myself for, for seeing something there. I mean, he came walked in, uh, walked in, he came in backstage one day. I think the Bell brothers brought him, Chris Bell and Mike Bell and Mark Bell. And the physique, obviously the face, the way he carried himself, um, that kind of like undefinable it quality. I mean, he he was blessed with that, you know. God God gave that to John Cena. He he worked with it himself. Can't say he can't take any credit for it. Um, but you could see that right away. 
I see. Is there anyone that you thought could have been a big superstar, but for whatever reason, never actually was able to make the transition? In in my book that I held up a while ago, um, you know, the, the book's like 400 pages and maybe 90 pages is dedicated to wrestling and fighting, MMA. Um, there's a little, I have a lot of like inserts in the book that really don't connect to the story, but I think I thought they'd be fun to insert. So I have this one little insert called the five that got away. So I can absolutely answer that question because I've, I've written the answer out myself. There were five guys in my mind that had they stuck with it, every single one of them would have been like major, major epic stars. Um, of the five, there are two that you might know. Uh, one guy, his name was Noah Steer. Um, Noah's a six foot, eight inch um, army ranger who had this amazing face. At six, eight, had a, a warrior body, but he was 10 times more athletic than warrior. He could do standing backflips. Um, he was like the ultra yes sir, no sir army guy. He was one. Um, there was a guy named Scott Wells, and Scott was the fiance of Monica Brandt, who was one of the top female bodybuilders at that time. Scott, in my opinion, would have, is the single biggest star ever to get away. He looked like Shawn Michaels. This is going to sound like such BS, but I'll swear to you it's true. He looked like Shawn Michaels, only he was better looking. He had the same physique that Shawn had at his best, only about 40 pounds more of muscle. And he was about two times the athlete that Shawn was. Um, but the guy just didn't have the mentality for it, unfortunately. The, um, the two that you might know... Um, one guy is uh, Michael Hearn, and Michael's probably the top male fitness athlete of all time. He's done more like men's fitness covers than anybody else. And then the other was uh, Evan Marriott, who was uh, television's Joe Millionaire. And they both, have, they both have the faces, the bodies, the athleticism, the whole nine yards. But for one reason or another, it just didn't work out. So were you managing MMA fighters before you opened the MMA gym? Uh, it started right at that same time. Um, I had opened a, shortly after I opened the gym, I put a second ring up in a school in Los Angeles at a place called the Raw Training Center. A guy named Rico Ciparelli, one of the first legendary trainers in mixed martial arts. He trained Randy Couture and a bunch of others. And Rico came to me one day and he said, I've got these two guys that I'm managing and he goes, I'm going to do this. This isn't for me. He goes, I'm not a manager type. These guys are high maintenance to the nth degree. I can't handle them, but I thought maybe you'd want to talk to them. And I said, sure. So he introduced me to Mark Coleman and Mark Kerr. And at that time, the, the Marks, as I called them, were the number, number one and two heavyweights in the entire world. So I started with them and then signed uh, Oleg Taktarov very quickly after that. So that, that started shortly after I opened my gym. Um, I think a primary difference for me at that point is, you know, managers in MMA were really funny at that time, man. It was usually somebody's father, mother, brother, or cousin, uncle, or somebody that had some sort of loose business affiliation, like a gym owner or a gym manager. Um, I, I try to be self-deprecating or in, in, you know, in a genuine sort of way and try to be careful about putting myself over in other ways. But I, I will say that, 90% plus the people that were managers at the early days had no business being a manager. I was a business person first and foremost. And I think that's what set me apart from most in the industry. And that's why very quickly 
I ended up managing not only Coleman and Kerr and Oleg, but also you managed, uh, you message, sorry, you mentioned Tank Abbott earlier and Kimo and Dan Severin and Don Fry and uh, Ken Shamrock. And, you know, not all the top heavyweights of the original era, but certainly the majority of them. How was Ken Shamrock to deal with? Ken, I like Ken. I always have, and I still do. Ken, you know, had a reputation which was not unearned. He could be a volatile guy for sure. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's, you know, he's a God-fearing believer who at heart is, is a good guy. And I knew that. And you can work with him because of that. You know, one, one thing I've always done, Devin, is, uh, you know, we're in business to make money, of course. That's always part of it. But by, by no means was that my sole or primary motivator. I wanted to enjoy what I was doing and I wanted to have good relationships. And I really love seeing good people, you know, good things happen to good people. Um, and there's so many instances where I was able like, to hand somebody their WWF contract or a contract from Pride that was way more money than they expected, which is just gratifying and fulfilling or get someone a nice role in a movie. Um, like with Oleg Tartarov, we got him that role in 15 minutes opposite Robert De Niro. Dude, Oleg was pretty much broke at that time in his life. And he needed that and wanted it more than anything. And the commission on that, I don't know, was probably like $3,000, which is nothing to sneeze at. But that was so much more for me. And I was happy to make the three grand. But that was so much more for me seeing how happy Oleg was getting that than anything. So the flip side of that was if I worked with somebody who was a dick and they had dollar signs written all over them, I would just cut them loose. I just didn't want anything to do with it. For Mark Coleman, are you the one that got him hooked up in the wrestling business? No, I didn't. I cannot take credit for that. Mark got himself in, into wrestling. Um, what I did for Mark is I did his UFC deal after he lost his title and lost his first deal. And then I did the deal for him at Pride and managed him at Pride. And that's where his star in Japan was made. And ultimately that segued into him wrestling over there. And Mark was a good worker. Mark Coleman could work. And you also had a managing experience with Tito Ortiz. I understand he's done some training at the uh, Performance Center lately. Do you think he would be a good pro wrestler at this time of, in his life? I don't know, man. I mean, Tito's in his mid to late 40s now. It's a, lot, it's a late time to start. But, you know, he, he's such a charismatic guy. And, and stands out from the crowd always. You know, not in size, but there's just something about... He's another one of those guys with that it factor. And we, we call it the um, undefinable it factor because you can't define it, but you know it when you see it. You don't see it often. And he definitely has that. And I think, you know, booked the right way, used the right way, protected the right way, he could definitely do something interesting there. He's not going to get in the ring and have great matches, I don't think. I could be wrong about that. But I don't think that's the uh, objective either. And you had your own MMA company for a while too, Valor Fighting. How was that? Valor Fighting and Management. And I formed that, I think, about 02. At that point, my wrestling company, UPW, you know, we're doing live events. We had a home theater, fit 600 people, no big deal. But we did sell out every time we ran there. We had regional television. We had uh, international DVD, including Walmart, Target, Kmart. Um, we had all kinds of terrestrial distribution deals for our, our product. Um, we had a school that was successful. My wrestling school made like five, 6,000 a month at one point. 
which as you probably know for wrestling schools is pretty significant because most don't make any money um we're booking tons of guys in movie and tv and commercial parts and that that was you know a, a hell of a piece of business so when mixed martial arts really started to happen and i decided to get into that business i just mirrored in valor what i had done with upw so we had all these what i call verticals you know distribution production merchandising licensing commercial theatrical so we just mirrored that for Valor and immediately put all those same, applied those same verticals to the mixed martial arts company. And it took off immediately. Um, that's when it was becoming, you know, quote unquote legal around the U.S. And I remember the day we went to apply for our licenses with the California State Athletic Commission. There were about 10 promoters there, uh, or 10, 10 would be promoters because none of us had licenses yet. UFC sent... Um, uh, Matt Hughes, Forrest Griffin, and I forgot who else was in the room for them. So we all got our licenses that day. But Valor, my company, was actually the first uh, company ever to promote a legal show in the state of California. Wow. So I got it right at the beginning. And you also did some work, I guess, for Disney that won you an Emmy. Is that true? Yeah, I got hired by Disney, and I think it was 1990. There's something I used to do when I was younger. When I really took off in business the first time in Santa Barbara, there were the kind of guys I idolized. One of my dogs, one of my pit bulls just threw up on my foot. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Good job, Ramon. You okay, buddy? All right. <laughs> um, right, buddy. Um, yeah, sorry. I lost my train of thought. I, I would People that I idolized back then, we're like, you know, business leaders like Steven Spielberg and what's the big people in the entertainment industry. So I had this letterhead, Bassman Productions, and I would write letters to these people. Hey, I admire you and what you've achieved. And maybe one day I can work with you or work for you or whatever. So I sent a letter to Michael Eisner and he was the CEO of the Walt Disney Company at that time. And not long after his uh, second in command, a guy named Art Levitt, called me. Because hey, Michael got your letter. He read it. He loved it. I read it. I loved it. Why don't you come in and uh, and meet me? So I go meet this guy, Art Levitt, who turned out to be a complete crazy wild man. I loved him. Still would if I saw him today. And he goes, "We got to get you in this company, man." And that started a thing for the next couple of years where he would call me when he thought there was a spot for me. And I was offered two jobs at Disney that I had no interest in. There were two others that I really wanted that I interviewed for and did not get the offer for. And then a couple of years went by and I get a call out of the blue one day from Art going, hey, I've been asking Michael, the boss, to give me my own project or property to run. He sent me to Florida to run Disney's first and only nighttime entertainment complex. He goes, it's failing miserably. He goes, I need you down here. So they fly me to Disney in Florida, first class. I go out, I have 12 meetings or 12 interviews, whatever you want to call it, in two days. Um, I show up with my suits, about my, all these different suits. And I'm wearing cowboy boots with my suits and my hair is past my shoulders. I look like a complete freak show, totally not the Disney mold at all. But all the meetings and interviews went really well. And then the 13th guy, Tom Elrod, he was second in command of the entire Disney World property. He missed our meeting. So they sent me home. They flew me back again first class like two weeks later for what amounted to literally a one-minute meeting. I'm like, well, that guy didn't like me. All right. And then about a month later, I got a phone call and they offered me the job. So I go out there and I'm standing in my, I'm Roger Kurz, the head of marketing for Disney at that time, Disney World, the Florida part, takes me to my office, really nice guy. He's like, hey, Rick, this is your um, secretary, Millie. And they called him secretaries and not assistants, their word, not mine. 
And like, hey, nice to meet you. She says, nice to meet you. And he goes, good luck. Pats me on the back and he leaves. And I turn to her. I go, do you know what we're supposed to do? And she's like, I have no idea. I'm like, okay. So this is after 13 interviews, mind you. So I call Art. I go, Art. He goes, hey, are you here? Are you in your office? I'm like, yeah. He goes, this is cool, right? I'm like, yeah. I go, question though. He's like, what? I go, dude, there's no job description. What do you want me to do? He goes, remember all that stuff we talked about, all the things that need to be changed here that you think need to be changed? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, you ready for your job description? I'm like, sure. He goes, all right, go fuck this place up. That was my whole job description, which was take this nighttime entertainment property that was failing miserably because they had Mickey Mouse dancing across the street singing children's songs and, you know, let's have a non-alcoholic beverage for little Johnny and all that. The thing is... It was nighttime. People wanted to go out. They wanted to party. They didn't want little Johnny sitting on mommy's lap having a root beer float while they're trying to, like, you know, get drunk and get laid, basically. Uh, that, again, that's just, that's why I wasn't working. So I turned the place upside down. It became very, very successful. Um, it was a hell of a battle, also. I was battling with a lot of conservative Disney brass. So I made a lot of friends who didn't want that island there, Pleasure Island, it was called. They didn't want it there in the first place. So to them, it was a somewhat necessary evil. So I made a lot of enemies and a lot of friends, both at the same time. And in the course of my tenure with the Walt Disney Company, I created a TV show that got nominated for and won the Emmy Award for Best Entertainment and Variety Special. So there's your long answer to that short question. And I guess at one point, you even managed Lou Ferrigno? I never managed Lou. You know, these Lou's a friend of mine. I've done a lot of bookings for Lou, a lot. Movie parts, TV parts, commercials, all sorts of things. And these days, I still partially make my living. Like, I just booked, um, I just had Jake Roberts at an appearance. I booked Jake in a couple of movies over the past few years. I just had Ray Phoenix um, do a pretty lucrative commercial for the California census. Um, but I don't. I don't agent or manage for anybody these days. I call myself more of a connector. I still come across opportunities. And when I do, I'll reach out to the boys or girls, if the case may be, and facilitate the deal. I earn my 10%. Everybody's happy. I'm not their manager, so they don't look to me every day for their living, so there's no pressure on me. And it's just a pretty easy way to do it. So I've done a ton of stuff for Lou over the years, and I've become pretty good friends with he and his wife, Carla, right now. What's he like as a person in real life? Lou's tough, man. Lou is, I like him, but he's not, uh, he's not the most pleasant guy on this planet, I have to say. Um, you know, he's, he's in command of his own world. Um, he's not mean. He's not a dick. He's just not warm and fuzzy, put it that way. And you've done some wrestling yourself over the years for your own company, and I guess mm -hmm. for Zero One in Japan. I know it wasn't like an extensive career, but could you tell us a little no. bit about your career? Well, I, I, I wouldn't even call it a career at all, man. I've had a handful of matches. Um, each one had a story to go with it. So, you know, I was proud of the fact we actually built stories and tried to execute on them. And I, I hate the word try because it's set up for failure. But I have to use try in this case because me trying to be a pro wrestler was not a pretty picture. But um, but it was fun, man. You know, I, I did this deal on my fifth anniversary show. And I'll send you the, the poster for the show. It's beautiful. Hall and Nash were on it. It was their first match post uh, WCW. Um, Ivory was on it. Uh, Jerry Lynn. Um, K-1000. 
Ken Shamrock. We did a Who's the World's Most Dangerous Man match with him and Sylvester Turkai. And there was a guy that used to be a baby face in my company as a, you know, a figure. His name was Pete Doyle. Irish Pete, we called him. He went on to become a writer at WWE. And Pete, when he worked for me in the early days of UPW, he had a brand new baby, like one year old. And I would have him bring the baby on stage and then like belittle him, not the baby, but Pete and make him do things like mop the floors so he could have enough money to feed his kids, you know, baby food or whatever. And that's when I was, you know, the heel owner. Cause we all do that. It's our company. We get to have fun with it and do our own things to put ourselves in the spotlight and whatnot. And I always had these massive guys around me as my bodyguards, the ultimate army. I called it for ultimate pro wrestling. Luther Reigns was one, Nathan Jones, John Heidenreich. They're all part of that. And, um, so years later, I had turned into like a benevolent baby face where my whole thing was wanting to help people. And I was in Japan so much in those days that I would start to miss UPW shows. So we made that part of the storyline where I took my metal clipboard. You know those construction clipboards? Yeah. You ever, you ever, you ever seen those used as a, a gimmick? You, you hit somebody over the head with that? It does two things at the same time. It doesn't hurt at all, and it makes like the greatest noise you ever heard. So it's like the best pro wrestling weapon there is. And when I was a when I was a heel, I would have my Ultimate Army guys hold guys, and I would just kibosh them with it. So all these years later, I still have it. So I handed it over to Pete in a symbolic gesture of, I'm in Japan. I can't watch over the company anymore. I like you. I trust you. You take over the company. And the storyline was, we did it for a year, man. We ran this way longer than WWE can seem to, to run a storyline. And... Pete became drunk with power, turned into a heel, turned into the guy I used to be, and came back eventually. We had match for control of the company at the fifth anniversary show. And that was a huge thrill for me, man. It wasn't horrible. We worked really, really hard on it. Um, we made it more of like a shoot because neither one of us are workers. And Chris Daniels helped us lay it out, which was a blessing. And that was awesome, man. It was just a huge thrill for me. And then after I went over, because that was the deal, of course, um, I remember that that was when we had our second development deal. It was now called WWE, no longer WWF. And I went to Johnny Ace, who was running developmental, and said, Johnny, would Vince record a video for us for the big screen? Congrats, big screens, because our shows were really high production value. Uh, we, we kind of set the standard for that for indies at that time. And I asked, would Vince record a video for us congratulating us on our, our five-year anniversary? And John's like, no, probably not, man. I go, will you ask him? And he goes, yeah, okay. And he calls me back. He goes, hey, Vince said he will. What do you want him to say? And so Todd Kennelly, who was a, my writer at the time, became a TNA announcer. He wrote the script. And Vince did it word for word, exactly how we sent it to him. And it, talk about being a mark for myself at that point. Um, I got over, got over on Pete in the match. I even bullied it, but there was a reason for it. Um, and after I won, Vince pops up on the big screens congratulating UPW and me for beating Pete. And then he's saying that he led the crowd singing the na-na-na goodbye song to Pete. It was pretty awesome. So that was one of my five matches. Another was Shorty, the midget who went on to become the star of Pit Boss, the reality show about pit bulls. Um, another was Hashimoto in Japan, which was also a huge. I actually headlined main event at Corican Hall. You told me I would do that in my lifetime. I would have told you you were crazy. So... Again, pretty pretty awesome stuff to be able to do. And if anyone doesn't know, that's one of the iconic venues in Japan. So it's pretty impressive you did headline there. 
how did you get that deal with Zero One? Because at that time, it was a bigger company than it is now, from what I understand. It was huge when it first started, yeah. Um, what had happened, Simon Anoki contacted me one day, and he said, hey, Hashimoto, and me, idiot that I was, didn't know who Hashimoto was, because I wasn't, a, wasn't following Japanese. Samoa Joe's like, you don't know who Hashimoto is? Oh, my God. Joe is, like, so dialed into the Japanese scene. Um, Noki said, um, this guy Hashimoto has heard about your school. He and a couple of his guys are starting a new company. They'd like to come by. Could you get some of your guys together? Sure. So I did what I always do. I went totally overboard, 8x10s, evaluation forms, and we brought out the freaking monster show freak factory of all time. Now, we were the first stop on Hashimoto's tour across the U.S. to go to different places. So Simon comes up to me afterwards. He goes, oh, Hashimoto's uh, going back to uh, Japan. Oh, I also, I had my um, UPW customized Ford excursion at that point, like the biggest car on the road. And Hashimoto just it was, had to drive my car. It was the funniest thing, man. They don't have vehicles like that in Japan. So I remember white knuckling in the passenger seat, ready, ready for this guy to kill my car. But that was pretty funny. So Simon comes up to me and says, Hashimoto is going back to Japan. And I'm like, why? He goes, because he doesn't need to go anywhere else. He'll get all his guys from you. I'm like, wow. Okay. So over the next few years, we sent pretty close to 80, 90 guys to Japan. And that was another thing I always loved doing, man, because they let me pick. After. I mean, they had the guys they, that got over, like Tom Howard, Sylvester Turkai, uh, Skulu, King Adamo, Samoa Joe, um, other guys. But they let me pick a lot. And, dude, that was, like, such a thrill for me to get to go to guys that I thought really deserved it and be able to say, hey, you're going to Japan. And uh, it was an amazing, amazing run. I myself have been to Japan about 70 times now. Um, a lot for Pride, a lot for K1, but primarily through the good graces of Zero One. Pretty incredible time. Now, I interviewed Nathan Jones about a year or so ago, and he told me his Pride fight was fixed. We're, oh, with Koji Katal. Yeah. Yeah. When those type of deals happened, would you be aware of it, or is that just like personal deals? Well, I, I didn't do Nathan's deal with Koji Katal. Um, I think that was actually before I met Nathan. Uh, but he told me it was, you know, he told me it was a work. You know, Nathan and I were really, really close friends at one point. So I have zero reason to doubt that he was telling anything other than the truth. Um, uh, Nathan and I unfortunately had a falling out years later, which we still haven't mended the fences on. And I do hope to do that one day. Matter of fact, I reached out to him not long ago and haven't heard back. So Nathan, if you're out there watching, fuck off and call me. Um, you, <laughs> am I allowed to say that on your show? I don't know. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Uh, Nathan, I love you. Fuck off and call me seriously. Um, but, uh, with, um, the, the works. So, I was doing a lot of stuff now with Pride, and Yukino Honda, she was a booker at the time, she calls me up. She says, you know, Mark, you represent Mark Coleman, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, we'd like to have Mark come to Pride. I said, great. We, As you know, we've been bugging you about this. Oh, yes, but he needs to come to a pro wrestling match. I said, Pride's going in the pro wrestling business? And she goes, oh, no, no. <laughs> so you know where this is going, obviously. We need him to put over Takata. Will he do that? I'm like, huh, I don't know. It's a good question. So we start to talk. I bring it to Mark. Mark was in a 
big, you know, he had lost his UFC deal. He was still at the time considered probably the most dominant heavyweight ever, but he was hurting for money. Those guys didn't get paid back in those days. And when they did, they spent what they made, you know, so Mark needed money. Um, I had him put up in an apartment in San Clemente where my wife and I were living, actually in the same complex, Mark Coleman, Mark Kerr, and Tom Howard all together. <laughs> that was fun, let me tell you. That was the beginning of the production on the Smashing Machine when everybody really started to descend into a, a personal hell together. Um, but, uh, <laughs> oh, dude, it was a time. Wow. So Mark said, yeah, maybe, you know, if the deal's right. So I go back and we started talking about the money. We didn't really get anywhere. And she says, well, we'd like to meet him because they wanted to ask him face to face, will you do this? They said, Rick, we believe you. You've been very truthful with us, but we want to be able to look him in the eye. I said, I understand. So we made a meeting. They couldn't make that meeting. Then they called me the next day. I was on my way out to a big like family dinner, and I couldn't make the meeting they wanted to schedule. And they said, well, is it okay if we meet with Mark if you're not there? And I said, yes, that's fine. Just don't talk money. Let me handle that part of it. Of course. Yukino said, yeah. Mark said, yeah. So Mark calls me a few hours later. He goes, you won't believe this, Bass. He would call me Bass. Bass, you won't believe this. They offered me $300,000. And I'm like, no, they didn't. <laughs> There's no way. Because they didn't have that kind of money back then. That would have been an unheard of payoff, even putting over Takata. Well, I don't know if you've been to Japan much or have much experience doing business with them, but they put their commas in different places than we do. So I went back to Mark and I said, Mark, let me talk to them, but there's no way. I call him back. He goes, I already figured it out. He goes, it's 30,000, right? I go, yep. Yeah, they put the comma under 30. And they put a comma in 300 when they meant 30. So his balloon kind of deflated. I, he go, I go, Mark, let me see what I can do. So I call you, Kino, and I say, well, he thought you were offered. He thought you offered three hundred thousand dollars, and she laughed. And I said, "Yeah." She goes, "No, the offer is thirty. I go, "Yukino, I know that, but he got so blown up over this. He already wasn't like that hot about doing it. So we were able to change the deal from thirty thousand to sixty thousand, which was a huge payoff at that time, and especially huge for Mark. So I flew over there with him, cornered for him, and I might be the only corner man in the history of Pride." yelling instructions at their fighter how to lose the fight. Because we were in there, man, and Mark had Takata in a neck crank, and I thought he was going to tap him. I really did. And I just had, like, these visions of the Yakuza coming after us in our hotel rooms if he put Takata out. So, uh, anyway, that was a job. If you watch the video all these years later, Boss Room's like, what's he doing? He can win this fight right now. Um, but there you go. It's amazing that it would only have been done for $60,000 because today in MMA for a big star like Mark Coleman was, that's so low, but that oh, was God. Different times, man. Different times, different era. You mentioned Mark Kerr. I understand The Rock's doing a movie about him soon. What are your thoughts on that? I couldn't be happier for Mark, man. He, he is truly one of the good guys. I have, a, I have a podcast that debuts this Saturday. I don't know when you air this interview. So this Saturday is March 29th. Um, it was called Talking Tough. When we interview guys, it's called the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. And it talks about their ascent to the top and all the stories, sex, drugs, and rock and roll that go along with that. But then every one of these people have had this horrendous crash to the bottom and talks about what their fall from grace was like and what they have to do to fight their way back. What did they learn? 
Um, what messages can they impart? And Mark Kerr is one of about 20 people that I interviewed for this so far. Very surprisingly small number of wrestlers and fighters. Many like the head of the Hells Angels, the head of the Navy SEALs, Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. I mean, people that have been through the shit. Um, but I interviewed Mark, and the interview was so good. I'm actually talking tough. My show debuts with the Mark Kerr interview. I thought it was that good. And it's just great talking with him, man. The guy is like, he's so self-realized, knows who he is, know where he's been, takes um, takes responsibility for his, his parts and his fuck-ups, as I like to think I do. Um, he's worked very hard at becoming a good person and being of service, as I think I like to do, I hope. Um, and he's had a hard time, man, and he, he deserves a break. He really does. So, yeah, to answer your question, Mark is, Mark is thrilled. He's not all blown up over it. He's taken it in stride, but he's very grateful and appreciative. And I'm just, I couldn't be happier for him that he gets this opportunity. For your WWE deal the second time, what happened with that? They just opened up their own territories and didn't want to deal with outside people anymore. That's, that's exactly what happened, man. Um, jo Johnny Ace, John Laurinaitis, for better or for worse, and I'm not really sure what my opinion is, he changed the business, man. Um, you know, when, when I had my first development deal with WWF, this is also, you know, when <laughs> it's going to make myself sound even older than I am, which is almost impossible. But this is like in the day and age when the Internet was still like becoming something. And it wasn't everywhere. And we didn't have the connectivity we have now. So it was very, very hard for talent to get seen back in those days. Like, I remember this is like this is just so bizarre now that something like this would happen. I remember after ECW folded, I was actually backstage at WWF one day. It was still F. And I got a call on my giant mobile phones. They were huge back then. And it was Rob Van Dam. And Rob says, hey, Rick. This is the guy who was Mr. ECW, right? He says, hey, Rick, do you think you could arrange for me to come backstage and you could like walk me around and introduce me? So, sure. But it kind of illustrates the point, man. If Rob Van Dam couldn't get seen back then, the average person couldn't get seen. Like I opened the door for, for Natty Neidhart. I opened the door for Seamus. I opened the door for Alberto. Um, people that just didn't know how to get seen. So John Laurinaitis kind of propagated a system. And I'm not saying it's bad at all, but he made it much, much easier for the talent of the world to access talent relations at WWE or WWF. So the need for people or organizations like myself just got phased out. That's all. What do you think really the last big star that WWE has had that has really transcended the mainstream has been John Cena? Like none of their their own schools has really developed a mega star um, like Cena or like Hulk Hogan or like The Rock. Do you think that's going to be a continuous issue? I don't I don't know. And, and here's the thing. Um, you know, Devin, I, I think that to find or develop a star like of that magnitude again, you know, uh, John Cena, who you mentioned, Rock, Hulk Hogan, uh, Steve Austin. I don't believe that either myself, UPW, WWE, uh, Vince McMahon, none of us have. I'm sorry, about that. none of us have the ability or the cap or the capability, in my opinion, to develop. Um, to develop a person like that. And, and the reason I say that is I mentioned during the course of this interview that, that kind of like undefinable inequality. And, you know, 
you can't develop it. Either those the guy has it or they don't. In with it, then you have something to work with. If you if you write for them properly, if you give them the right platform, if you allow them to be who they are, then you might end up with another, another rock on your hands. You know, rock. Remember when we started was Flex Havana. I, think. I mean, horrible. Didn't stand out from the pack at all. But then he started to stand out because they let him be him a little bit, and then he became the rock, or he made he created the rock. Just like Austin did with, um, you know, from Hollywood Steve Austin to Stone Cold Steve Austin. So, it will they have another guy like that ever again? I think the answer is absolutely wholly dependent upon whether or not a guy like that a exists and then presents himself to them. That's the only way we're ever going to see somebody like that. Um, in the tail end of the UPW and Ultimate University days, my school guy came through the doors. And he absolutely reminded me of a red-haired version of John Cena. Um, same type of look, um, probably a little better physique, a little better personality. And I'm like, this guy's it. And I remember calling Laura Nidus going, I got your next guy. And the guy disappeared. And I must have called that guy. I'd never chased anybody back in the day. You don't want to do that because you want them to want to do it. But I chased that guy and chased him and chased him. I don't remember his name now. Um, but that guy was one in a billion, literally, and they're out there, but there's not many of them. That's all. Now you've mentioned a couple times in this, this Saturday, your, your podcast drops for the first time. Could you tell yes. us where we could download that, where the website is or your social media where we can. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I don't want to do too much plugging on this podcast. I've enjoyed talking with you, but I, I do want to push this a bit. So the podcast is called Talking Tough. And as I mentioned earlier, it's about um, it, really examining life with what I call the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. I mean, we, we do have guys on there that you and I will recognize immediately, like Mark Kerr, Ken Shamrock, Kurt Angle, Boss Rutten, uh, but not many from the fighting wrestling world. And it's a lot it's a lot different than just talking with them about, you know, their exploits in those industries. We do talk about that. But we, what we talk more about is, you know, all of these guys, as you probably know, have had some pretty spectacular falls from grace. And we've talked about what those, you know, trips to the rock bottom look like, how they got there, what part they played and been responsible for it, um, and how they got out of it, or if they're out of it. Um, you know, we get deep with these guys. What are they actually ashamed of in their lives? And these guys all talk about it. It's pretty amazing um, what lessons they've learned, what lessons they can impart to others. Um, I interviewed two guys together the other day. I just want to give you an example. Um, Azim Kamisa, he's a guy from Jordan, came to the U.S. about 50 years ago. And he's like a pretty classic immigrant makes good story. Came here, worked his ass off to get his son into San Diego State University. By all accounts, a really nice young man. The kid's name was Tariq. And he took a job delivering pizzas to earn extra cash on the weekends for school. And the very first weekend he was there, he was executed in a um, gang initiation. And the kid that executed him was 14 years old, African-American. And he was a, his name was Tony Hicks. And he was the first minor in California charged as, and sentenced as an adult. So he got a life sentence. And this guy, Azim... He lived for his son. So, you know, when you hear a story now, the guy spent a year lying in bed or on the floor thinking about killing himself. And he decided to get up eventually. He researched the kid that killed his son. 
found out they had no parents, but he found the grandfather and he reached out to and he befriended the grandfather of his son's murderer, if you can imagine that. And they ended up forming a nonprofit together to combat youth violence in the San Diego area. And about 10 years later, Azim went to the prison where the murderer was and visited him and spent the next 20 years developing a friendship with and lobbying to get his son's murderer out of prison. And he got him out just three months ago. And this guy, Tony Hicks, he's now 36 years, 36 years old. He joined Azim and they're in the nonprofit together, going out and speaking together and trying to change the world together. And I interviewed the two of them together the other day. And it's, it's pretty wild, man. So, you know, I got them to talk about what it's like to sit there, you know, with the father of the kid that you murdered, or in Azim's case, with the murderer of your son. And not only to sit in the same room, but to, to forgive one another and, and, and love one another. So there are a lot of examples like that on the Talking Tough podcast. I have the, hells of the head of the Hells Angels on, the head of the Navy SEALs, uh, a guy named Emmanuel Jahl, who's an amazing peace activist who was a child soldier in the Sudan. I mean, the list goes on and on. So Saturday, by the time your listeners and viewers, all 145,000 of them, congratulate you on that, by the way. Your subscriptions are amazing. By the time they hear about this, they can uh, they can find us on Podcast One. That's where Adam Carolla and Joe Rogan are. Um, but the, the feed also goes out to anywhere you listen to a podcast, Stitcher, Apple, Google, um, where, wherever you might listen to a podcast. I would ask or, or, or respectfully beg your, your listeners and viewers, if they don't mind, to, to give me a follow or a like on Instagram or Facebook, that would be amazing. My personal Instagram is Rick, R-I-C-K underscore Bassman, B-A-S-S-M-A-N. Um, my Facebook is the Rick Bassman. And from there, you'll be directed to all the Talking Tough platforms. So uh, that's where I can be found. That's the plug. The show has been amazing so far. We've got some incredibly seemingly tough people on it, dude, opening their hearts. And it's uh, it's been pretty awesome so far. Now, is it the current head of the Hells Angels or a guy that was head of them in the past? He is the guy now that, and it's funny, that was a type of interview where you really, in the pre-screen, have to get into what you can talk about and not talk about, as you might imagine. So he, uh, Rusty Coons, is still active to this day. Um, he heads up the um, the the San Fernando Valley and Orange County chapters, and you would have seen Rusty in Sons of Anarchy. He was an advisor on the show, and just because he so much looks like the poster child for the Hell's Angels, they put him on the show. He's a six foot six inch, three hundred pound guy with the big blonde beard and the, you know the long hair and all that. And Rusty's been a friend for many many years, so that was cool to get to talk to him about this kind of stuff. So Rusty's still current to answer your question. Okay, yeah, because that's just what I was wondering, what they could talk about and and whatnot, because an organization like that is a little controversial, I guess. Yes, yes. And, and, there, and there's, there's a lot of limits to what he is, even though he's, you know, ostensibly the boss, there's a lot of limits to what he can talk about. And that's what we get into. Interesting. Well, I'll put all the information where people can find your podcast in the description of this for anyone listening that wants to find the exact links and i wish you the best of luck with it and i hope next year when i'm in hawaii to get a good quality video uh because skypes are great but there's so much more deeper stuff we could get into with you 
For sure, man. Let's definitely connect when you're here. I appreciate the opportunity to be on today, Devin. Thanks. And congratulations on all your success. It's really cool to see it. Thank you. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.